0: Let's get started then, and I'm going to finish chapter 9, but I want to, um, I just want to review a couple of things. I'm, I'm I'm very, very convinced that in teaching and communicating truth, review and review and review and review and review, and review is just a very central uh, way of communicating truth and really embedding it in your mind. And so that's... Uh, what I want to do. This will probably be the last time I do this, but I want to remind you of a couple of things. The structure of the book of Daniel is really, really important. And to just keep this, make sure it's very clear in your mind. The first seven chapters of the book of Daniel are really God's purpose and plan for Gentile world history. And you see the identical structure in chapter 2 and chapter 7. And that structure is there will be four great world kingdoms with the fourth kingdom having two phases, which will then result in the kingdom of God. So where is history headed? If, you would, if anybody asks you that, I mean, you're a Christian, but that's, your, that's what the Bible so clearly teaches. Where is history headed? The answer is the triumph of the kingdom of God. That's where it's headed. And that's, that's what is laid out for us in this. What Daniel 8 through 12, which we're sort of in the middle of that now, what Daniel 8 through 12 does is, let me use another way of describing it. I don't think I've ever used that that way, but what it does is it superimposes the Jewish people and God's purpose and plan for them over this framework. If I say it that way, does that make sense to you? In other words, you have this framework, this plan, this purpose that God has for Gentile world history. And then in Daniel 8 through 12, the, the, the question is, well, what is, and that's in a sense what Daniel's asking God, What's, what about my people, how do they fit into this? And so in a very real sense, this section is like superimposed over the Gentile world history. And what we learned last week, and again, I really want to look at the notes here that I've given you in just a minute, but Daniel 9 is really the key to this. It is it is the central key to answering that question, the role of the Jews. What do they play in this, this plan that God has? And his purpose is laid out very clearly 490 years. And that's 490 years from the time that decree, which this is Artaxerxes' decree in 444 B.C., until Messiah is cut off. And we learn that. It's very clear. It's crystal clear in the text. We look at that place We going kind of look at it again that there's a beginning point and there's an ending point of this. But it's only 483 years. But he tells us that this, the Jews and their role and what's going to be accomplished in this period is a thoroughly redemptive purpose. And there are six clear purposes. I want to look at those. They're articulated for us in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9. And again, I really want this so I really do want this sort of cemented in your mind that what God is saying is I'm superimposing the, the Jewish history on, to, to the Gentile world history and from the time they go back from exile until the Messiah is cut off there are going to be six things accomplished and then where we sort of were last week when we left off we didn't finish this verse 25-27 through of Daniel chapter 9 helps us to see as well that the Jews are the key to the end of history. What is happening to the Jewish people is the marker for the end of the the sequence of events that will bring in the kingdom of God. What is declared to be the fundamental purpose and goal of history, the coming kingdom of God, we learn the Jewish people, and what happens to them is the key to that being fulfilled. So you take these two segments of the book of Daniel together you really have an outline of God's plan and it's it's that's why Daniel is just a profoundly central book to the scriptures and that's why people that don't study or don't know the book of Daniel or if you start studying the book of Revelation and you haven't studied the book of Daniel you're lost and I, you really are, you do not have the framework
1: Was Daniel the first uh, book in the Bible that introduced the 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 coming of the Messiah, the first coming of the Messiah, or the, it introduce no. a new idea of redemption, or it was an existing.
0: Oh no, it it was uh, it was well, in, in a sense it goes back to Genesis three fifteen. Yeah, but in terms of the details, uh, that it is uh, the, the son of David is in the Davidic line. You have you have the prophets. And the biggest and most significant, I should say biggest, the most significant prophet is Isaiah. And Isaiah is about 700 B.C. This is 500 B.C. By this I mean Daniel, you know, roughly, rounding the numbers off. So uh, Isaiah is the one, and uh, in, in, uh, there are others too. I mean, Hosea is a very early prophet, but it's, it's, it's Isaiah that really lays out the details about the first advent of the Messiah and the second advent of the Messiah. It's hard to pick all that out. You can do it because you and I have the completed revelation of God. So does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, so Isaiah is actually, yeah, I didn't know. Isaiah,
0: Isaiah is before Jesus. Daniel by you know, a couple hundred years or so. Right. And so. Um, so we can understand what Isaiah was referring to after the first coming of Jesus. Now we can look at.
1: back Very and, much. And, oh, yeah. that's Very much what so. it means, right? Very much so.
0: And I mean, even, even long before it happened, the, the rabbis and teachers of, of the law and all of that would constantly refer to Isaiah, that Isaiah is telling us what Messiah is going to be like. And Jesus, as you know, Luke 4, when he preaches, well, it's not preaches, but he delivers that mini-sermon after he reads. He, reads from, he stands up, reads from Isaiah 61, sits down, remember what he says? Today, this has been fulfilled in your midst. I fulfill Isaiah 61. And every Jew knew that Isaiah 61 was messianic. And that, I mean, just so much of that. And the other thing about Isaiah too, Mark, is Isaiah tells us a lot about, I shouldn't say a lot, but it gives us the framework too for the end of history. Because Isaiah is the only other book of the Bible that talks about a new heaven and new earth. Isaiah 65 and 67 talk, Isaiah 65 and 66 talk about the new heaven and new earth. You don't see that anywhere else in the Bible except Revelation 21 and 22. So that's why somebody has someone has once said that Isaiah is the Bible in miniature. It's 66 chapters, 66 books in the Bible. It's, uh, it's got all of the major themes, the covenant issues, all of the, all of the prophetic issues, and the clear teaching about the Messiah. Isaiah is, Isaiah is a hard book to study, But it's a central. It's much more difficult than Daniel, because it is just filled with prophetic stuff. And and you and I have. We are so blessed because we have seen the first advent. We know all the details, and uh, it's just it's a blessing. But it's a hard book to study. So I just again I want to review that. Are you with me on this? Do you understand? If you understand what I've written on the board, I mean, you really understand it. You really have Daniel down. Now the details, that's the hard, but you have the framework down, and it is really important to do that. All right? You with me?
1: Show my ignorance, maybe. Were the books of the Bible, at least in the
0: Old Testament, written by the contemporaries of the prophets? Thinking of the the prophetic books, you know, Isaiah and
1: Daniel, certainly. Mm -hmm. But... to me, that's that has some significance uh, for
0: authenticity. Uh, I'm not sure I'm understanding your question, but did, so did Jeremiah write Jeremiah? Or yes. Did one of his assistants. <laughs> no, Jeremiah wrote. He tell. I mean, we. There's no question. Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah.
1: Okay. So, so. And the, the was one Daniel thing also somewhat autobiographical.
0: Oh yeah, Daniel is written by Daniel. Yeah, absolutely. There's no. Now, the the critic, <laughs> I mean, I'm answering it because I'm the evidence is overwhelming, and, I mean, that evidence can be presented, but the critic doesn't buy that because the critic doesn't believe you can write a prophecy. So if you can't write prophecy, then you have to conclude, well, then this was written after all this stuff happened. Sure, sure. Which is just, details. oh, yeah, but that's, um, that is baseless. I mean, if you're intellectually honest, that is not accurate to argue that. So, so that would apply to, to yeah. as well. Alright, so let's let's go back to the end of Daniel 9. I really want to cement this in your mind, and I want to just go through a couple of things one more time. I, if you have your notes, and I know you, not all of you have them with you, but if you do, if you look with I at mean, uh, page 13, and then the next page, page 14, I want to pack, pay close attention. I spent a lot of time writing this. And this is hard to sort this through and put it down. So I want you to note, first of all, verse 24 and in verse 13, not verse 13, page 13 is where I have that. Now, what I want you to see there, what is in verse 14, what is in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, is is what I'm doing with here. There are six purposes. There are six God-centered, redemptive purposes that are going to be accomplished through the Jews. Now that sentence I just started, does that make sense to you? Because what Daniel 9 is doing is it's explaining to us how does God's plan for the children of Israel fit into this plan. And what, what God is saying here through Gabriel to Daniel is, my purposes for you are redemptive. Remember Jesus, the woman at the well in John chapter 4? She's a Samaritan that rejects the Messiah idea and the Jews and so on. They have their own idea of Messiah. Anyway, the point is, young lady, you have to remember salvation comes to the Jews. Now, of course, among very specific things, that means that Messiah is going to be Jew. And, of course, Jesus is standing in front of her and he is a Jew. So that the, the, the fundamental purpose historically for the Jewish people is a salvation purpose. And when God called Abraham out in Genesis chapter 12, he says to Abraham, he makes him three promises, land, seed, and blessing. The blessing part is, Abraham, in you, you could translate that, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And the Apostle Paul picks up on that in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, says that blessing is the blessing of salvation. So what Daniel nine twenty four is doing is it's back to that theme. The purpose, the goal for the Jewish people is a redemptive one. Seventy years have been decreed for your people in your holy city, which is Jerusalem. And look at it. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So let's look at those real quickly. And I've itemized them out there on the notes, however you want to look at it. But I just want to go through those real quickly. This is not difficult stuff. To finish the transgression. To finish, to bring to an end, to bring to completion, the, the Jewish apostasy the Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Messiah second to make an end to sin through the Jewish people through the Messiah and through all that he's going to accomplish God is going to bring an end to the rebellion God is going to bring an end to sin And that is all wrapped around the cross, death, burial, and resurrection, and all wrapped around the second coming of Christ. But through Jesus Christ, a Jew who comes through the Jewish people, God is going to bring an end to their apostasy and the sin of the human race. And he will do that by, number three, making an atonement for iniquity. Now you, I'm sure, already know this, but the word atonement is a key biblical word. It's a redemptive word. God is going to once for all atone for sin. And the book of Hebrews, if you refer to that, that once for all atonement for sin is what Jesus Christ did on the cross when he shed his blood and then the Father three days later resurrected him. It's over. The atonement has been made. And all of that completed work now we apply to our life by faith. So the first three items are the key redemptive... When God said in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, from the seed of the woman, I am going to bring one who will crush the serpent. Well, I mean, that's a broad problem. We have no idea the detail. But if that's all we had in the Bible, we would know that God is going to bring the rebellion down. What it's telling us here is that it's through the Jewish people, in the person of the Messiah, that God's going to do this. Then look at the last three: to bring in everlasting righteousness, to bring in a kingdom that will be characterized by everlasting righteousness. And uh, Mark asked that question about Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is filled with that. Remember Isaiah chapter nine. We sing that at Christmas in Messiah in uh, Handel's Messiah. You have those descriptions of the coming King, what he's going to be like. Remember. Um, well I, you don't want me to sing it but it has he's going to be righteous and he's going to be the king of kings and he's going to be the everlasting father the prince of peace and all of those things so that's kingdom language everlasting that's kingdom language that what is promised here in the first seven chapters that God's kingdom is going to triumph it's telling us now it's going to be through the Jews i.e. the messiah that you will see this accomplished. And you have the last two. It's, it depends on your translation. It's, it can be phrased a little bit differently, but it's essentially to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, to fulfill and complete and bring to utter finality all of the prophecies that have been made. There are 357 prophecies about the first advent of Jesus. And there are 200 and some odd prophecies that deal with the second Advent. They will all be fulfilled. And then the final one is, is in many ways the most difficult one. It, there's, that's the one that commentators write a lot about. But to anoint the most holy place, uh, it depends on your translation, but that, that seems to be indicating, and that's where the challenge is, but it seems to be indicating that when Messiah sets up his kingdom, he will consecrate that temple in Jerusalem, and that's what is called in the New It's the Ezekiel Temple that's described in Ezekiel chapter forty through uh, through forty-eight. So uh, that's but it that is very definitely a, a part of the prophetic material that there will be a temple in Jerusalem. That temple is going to be associated with the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and that—that that seems to be what it's saying. And that would complete that coming of the kingdom of God to earth. Can
1: you explain that a little bit
0: more? Um, I guess <laughs> I'm trying. Well, that's good. I mean, I really should. Um,
1: Which verse are you referring to right now? Daniel nine.
0: I'm in Daniel nine, verse twenty-four. Is where I am. Um, we know from ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 and that is the, the book of ezekiel is a difficult book it's a little bit like isaiah but ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 talks about the kingdom of god it talks about the triumph of the kingdom of god and it talks about a temple it, talks about, it gives, if you look at that, it gives explicit dimensions. Ezekiel is instructed, God gives him a vision of this, and he in instructs him, measure this. And he measures, he gives the exact measurements. And those measurements correspond to the measurements that we read in the book of Revelation, which I doubt is a coincidence. And so what it seems to be saying to us then is that final element that will come through the Jewish people, i.e. through their Messiah, is the anointing and the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which I think will last for a thousand years according to Revelation 20, in and through the temple from which he will rule. Because Ezekiel is describing a temple that does not fit Solomon's measurements, does not fit Zerubbabel's measurements, does not fit Herod's Reconstitution of Zerubbabel's temple, and then the temple was destroyed by Rome in AD seventy. And if you are with a conservative Jew, an Orthodox Jew, they they speak of three temples: Temple period number one, Solomon; Temple period number two, Zerubbabel to AD seventy, because they look at Herod's temple as just a modification of the Second Temple, so the Second Temple period, and then the conservative Orthodox Jewish rabbi speaks of the third temple period, which is Messiah, in his not temple. Exist yet. Which has not happened yet. Uh,
1: is it bigger, smaller, same size, you know, like you said, dimensions, is it going to be all over the old area where the Temple Mount is supposed to be? It
0: would not be the, ent- the entire area of Temple Mount is 39 acres, so it's not that entire Temple Mount, but it's, it is it lo- is much, much larger than Derababa's Temple. And it would, it would be comparable in size, but even larger, to Solomon's. And
1: Jesus would rule, from from your, in your opinion, Jesus would rule from there? That's correct. That's correct. So That's correct.
0: Revelation be- 20, if, and Fred's given me permission to do that, so when we get to Revelation 20 in 2019, which is about when we'll get there, <laughs> at the rate we go in this class, but when we get there, you will see that six times it is mentioned a thousand years, that Jesus will rule for a thousand years. I don't know any reason why we shouldn't understand that literally. But some people say it's figurative, but I don't see any reason why we understand that literally. And that he will rule in the capital of his kingdom, that 1000 year will be Jerusalem. That's very clear. Zechariah 14 tells us that um, as well. So, I mean, I, you put a all together. I'm, I'm trying to stay away from going into any more detail, but I will go into more detail if you want to talk about it. That the sixth one is the, the more difficult one. The other five are very easy to understand, these purposes, these redemptive purposes of what the Jewish people through their Messiah are going to bring. It's really, it's an astonishing verse. It really is. It's its an astonishing verse. God is not done with the Jewish people. And
1: this is not even, the, the, the establishment of the second temple was not existed yet, right? Herod was about to, did he already establish the the temple? Now, what are you
0: talking, when Daniel's writing this? When Daniel's writing this, Zerubbabel's temple isn't even built yet. Yeah,
1: so he was talking about the third temple and even the second was not even established. That's correct,
0: that's correct. This is a crazy question. That's correct. John.
1: Now, when you say that God is not finished with the Jewish people, are you talking back at the time
0: here of these six purposes or are you talking about the present Oh, I'm talking about well, I'm talking about first in terms of Daniel because he is going to bring them back from exile, etc. But I think uh, even in terms of, of for us this period of time, God is not done with. The Jews through the Messiah, through the Jews, through the Messiah. But you're not saying then that these things aren't going to come to pass until the Jews themselves accept. Christ is the no because all the only one the only the, the two well actually the three the last three the first three are wrapped around the first advent of Jesus the second three are wrapped around the second advent of Jesus okay. follow me? because the kingdom of everlasting righteousness hasn't, hasn't been established yet you know what I mean the, the, planet earth is not yet bending the knee to Jesus Paul tells us in Philippians 2, there's coming a day when that's going to happen, but that's not happening yet. And the, the complete fulfillment of all the prophecies hasn't been completed yet. And the anointing of the most holy place hasn't happened yet. Those three things are all, so again, another way of thinking it, the first three of these six are wrapped around the first advent of Jesus and accomplished in that advent. The second three are wrapped around the second advent of Jesus, and they have not happened yet.
1: But until the second advent of Jesus, the Jews are not going to be accepting him. Not at so all, that's right, that's right, that's before. right.
0: Now there are some, this
1: is, I think the question is- yeah,
0: there are some Jewish people, I mean, even the first century church, the earl, all the early leaders of the church in the all first century were all Jews, Peter, Paul, James, John, all those guys. But now today there are some, I have some very, very dear friends who are Jewish people who have trusted Jesus Christ they're the most exciting people to be around because they are so energetic and so focused. And some of them have been disowned by their families, and it's they often pay a price for doing that. But anyway, so John, it's, it's future for these things to be fulfilled. And that is still God. The 70th week, which is what we're about to look at in, in a minute, is the Jewish people are back on center stage in what God is doing. And I want to get to that uh, if I possibly could, this remaining half hour. But Joel has a question. So the, you would, from just reading the verse, you wouldn't necessarily conclude that there would be 69 weeks and then this extended break. Is that fair to
1: say?
0: You will from verse 25 okay. and 26. Okay. You will. But okay. verse 24 is just the start of it. Verse 24 is telling the sixfold purpose that God will accomplish through the Jewish people and IE through their Messiah who is introduced in verse 25. Okay, now I wanted to get the purposes down but, <laughs> but do you do you understand I mean this is what this is so significant. Verse 25 is telling us that through the Jewish people and their Messiah God's going to accomplish these six things in the first advent and in the second advent. Now let's look at the plan. Now I told you this last week. I'm going to read this. Uh, I'm going to read 25 and 26 again. And I want you, I want I'd like you to do is just either note or underline or circle or just make a mental note of key words. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, there were four of those issued. We have to determine which one he's referring to. So the first key word in terms of temporal, or in terms of time, is from. So what this text is seeming to tell us is that the beginning of this 70 weeks, this 490 years, is this decree. That's the beginning. Until Messiah the Prince, there will be 7 weeks and 62 weeks. That would be... That'd be 69 weeks of years. Remember, we talked about that earlier. 69 times 7, that's 483 years. Okay, what's that telling us? What you have is you have the beginning of this 70 week, and you have an ending of the 69 weeks. But you still have one week, don't you? 69 plus 1 equals 70. So you have 483 years uh, accounted for. If you look... If you look at this chart in your notes on page 13, this is, I didn't do this, a friend of mine did it, but if you look at this, this is really quite amazing. The decree that I think is being referred to is the decree that's in Nehemiah chapter 2, the decree of Artaxerxes, the final decree. Nehemiah, you have final authority no matter what those opponents are trying to say to you. you You have final approval to finish the work Build the moat, build the plaza, build the wall, surround Jerusalem. That decree was issued on March the 5th, 444 B.C. The text tells us, that's the beginning, until the Messiah the Prince is cut off. You know, that is amazing. When you chart that out, that is exactly, till March the 30th, A.D. 33, that is exactly 483 years. To the day It's 483 years. Do you think that's a coincidence? No. It's telling us in verse 25 what God's time frame was. But we still have only 483 years accounted for. I mean, it is amazing the accuracy of this. It's, It's absolutely phenomenal. Okay, now continuing, continuing.
1: It... How did he get
0: 470 years from the seven sevens and 62 sevens? Is what he says. Well, you, you have, uh, it, it, it said earlier in verse 24 that 70 weeks have been declared. 77, seven times 70 is 490 years, okay? If you take what it said, from the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, there will be seven weeks and, and 62 weeks. It will be built again, it meaning Jerusalem, with plo, plaza and moat, even in the times of distress, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. All right, so you have seven weeks to complete Nehemiah's project, plus the 62 additional years, uh, uh, sevens, which gives you 69. 69 times seven is 483. Are you with me, Mark? Mm-hmm. Yes. So in other words, if 483 is divided into two parts, seven, to get completed, all that Nehemiah started, and all the exile started, and then the rest, and get you to the the uh, coming of Jesus into Jerusalem, which will lead to his crucifixion. I hope I'm not losing you. Now look with me. I'm in verse 26, and Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. It's really instructive in verse 26 that Messiah is used. If you're a Jew reading that, how do you understand that? It's the son of David, it's the promised coming king, it's the Isaiah 9 passage, it's all that stuff fulfilled. And now notice, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and its sanctuary. And the end will come with a flood, and even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. Okay, now, who is the one who destroys the city and sanctuary? That's Titus in AD 70. But then verse 27 jumps from the end of Jerusalem, the end of that 483 period, it jumps to the future. Because in verse 27, you have one week mentioned. It's the 70th week. What happens in the 70th week? And then the key to understanding verse 27 and its application and its interpretation is what Jesus Christ says about this verse. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. If we did not have what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15, it might be a bit problematic if we've got this right. But there's absolutely no doubt what's going on here. Matthew 24, 17 is referring to the Antichrist who is the prime mover in that last week, that 70th week, that last 7 year block of time. Because Jesus quotes from this verse, and he says, in the middle of that week, when you see the Abominable One set up worship of himself as he desolates the temple, he says, you Jews, run (laughs) for the hills, because he's going to make war on you. Which is exactly what the book of Revelation, chapter 13, tells us he does. So verse seventeen sorry, verse twenty-seven is fast forwarding to the future. And it tells us what Second Thessalonians two tells us, what Daniel two told us, what Daniel seven told us. There will be a figure at the end, the New Testament gives him the title Antichrist, who will foster the final rebellion against God and he will make war on the Jewish people. And at the end of that, Christ will come back. So if, in, in the notes, I've written all this out in the notes there on page 14. And we just summarized all of it, really. And I give you all the New Testament references and everything. Again, I repeat, because Jesus Christ quotes verse 27. When he's answering the questions his disciples ask him, sitting on the Mount of Olives, they say, Lord, what will be the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus answers that question, the end of the age first. And he explains to them using the language of Daniel and quotes Daniel and says, in the middle, when you see him set up that... That abominable one set up that temple to worship himself, declares himself to be God. You Jews, run for the hills. And so... It doesn't
1: mention over here how long this war is going to be. How long what? The war that that Antichrist is going to...
0: Not specifically in Daniel. We're going to see a little bit of it in Daniel chapter 11 and a great deal of it in the book of Revelation, which is what we call the campaign of Armageddon. But we're way ahead of ourselves now. That now, that, this is what's hard about studying Scripture, but we are trying. We have the advantage of connecting the material in the New Testament with this. But do you understand this? Are there any questions? Because what we're doing is we're reviewing this, reviewing this, and making sure this is clear to you. You have the six purposes God has to accomplish these 490 years. And third, secondly, that is the Jewish people who are the key to history's end. Because it is this abominable one who is going to break his covenant and make war on the Jews. You've got to watch for him. When you see him, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 24. When you see him do that, the end is moral and sneer. Run. Because he's going to make war on you. I'm paraphrasing in just two sentences what he says in about seven sentences. But that's so it's really, really important because as I've said this again and again, the rest of the Bible builds on what Daniel is telling us. And every other part of the Bible that speaks of second coming prophetic scripture assumes you've read Daniel 9. And assumes you understand it. And so if you don't understand it, or I think you do now, but if you don't have that framework, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. Paul does that when we studied this in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul assumes you understand what Daniel 9 is telling us. And all he does is he just adds more information about who this evil one is. No, I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish in going over Daniel chapter 9 the really key question is did I accomplish it sufficient enough to build your level of understanding these are the two key things to remember the six purposes God's going to accomplish for his ultimate plan for humanity six, three wrapped around the first advent three wrapped around the second advent and the Jewish people are really the key to history's end because Antichrist will make war on them. He will try to do what Hitler tried to do, wipe them out. But of course, God's not gonna let that happen. Okay? When I say, okay, that's a rhetorical question and the answer is assumed to be true that you want me to move on. If that is not the case, you gotta stop me and ask questions. What? John. It
1: says he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. This
0: is the abominable one. Yes. we will do that. <clears throat> but you said
1: earlier that Jesus, his death, put an end to, to sacrifice. So I, I'm a little puzzled here. Is that...
0: That's right, he did. Yeah. Okay, let's... Uh, we don't learn this from verse 27, but we learn this from several other Old Testament prophets plus the New Testament. That the Jewish people, Ezekiel 36 and 37, really tells us this very plainly. The Jewish people, as history approaches its end, are going to be coming back to the land. The language of Ezekiel is God is going to bring them back to the land. My own opinion is that we're seeing that right now. I think that's what we're seeing in the regathering of Jewish people. And Ezekiel tells us this. Jeremiah tells us this. Jesus tells us this, Paul tells us this, the book of Revelation tells us this, That, and it's hard for us to imagine how this is going to happen, but the Jews are going to rebuild their temple on Temple Mount. They're going to, be what? They're going to rebuild their temple on Temple Mount, and they will then reconstitute the sacrificial system. Now, see, that's really hard to imagine because on the, it's, it's not perfectly in the center it's kind of off-center, but you have the dome of a rock. And it's kind of hard to imagine that temple being rebuilt, but the Bible says that's going to happen. And so they will institute their sacrifices and so on. And what the Bible tells us is going to happen, Then this Antichrist, this evil one, is going in the middle of this seven-year period, three and a half years, this is what Jesus talked about in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, is going to force them to end that and demand that they worship him. He's going to put an end to the sacrificial system, which they've just reinstituted. And he's going to say, I'm breaking this covenant with you. I'm breaking this treaty with you. I want you now to bow down and worship me. And Revelation 13 will explain that in greater detail to us. That's exactly what he's going to try to do.
1: But the Jews who are not believers in the Messiah... Not yet. you still have the sacrificial system in place. That's right so it's not, it's not abolished for the Jews yet
0: no that's right from their perspective from their perspective not from their it. perspective no for us the
1: Gentiles and believers in Jesus Christ who, who are Jews or Messiah we do not have the, the sacrificial system that's right we, Jesus sacrificed himself for us that's right so this goes to but the, the sacrificial
0: people. system from God's perspective is over
1: Because of the Messiah. Because of the Messiah. Messiah. But the Jews haven't
0: accepted Jesus as the Messiah, the Orthodox Jews. But there are, it's called the Temple Mount Society. It's a very large group of Jews. Well, I should say it's not a, it's a small group, but it's a good-sized group of Jews. they are Orthodox Jews, extreme Orthodox Jews, but they are planning for the Temple to be rebuilt. If you ever go there, right as you just end, exit the Jewish quarter and enter the, the great plaza where the Wailing Wall is, right to the left is this huge menorah. That's the Temple Mount Society. That used to be in the Cardo in the old city of Jerusalem. Now it's right, right in the plaza, right before the, the Wailing Wall, right up there's the Temple. They want to move that up there. Well, there's no way the Jerusalem government is going to let them do that, but they're a lot closer. They are, planning, they are planning to rebuild the temple. So, I mean, the energy is there. All you need is the individual to show up, who's going to make the promise. I'm going to bring peace to this land that hasn't been here for thousands of years, and I'm going to let you reinstitute your worship.
1: But the mosque has to be gone.
0: To well, um, there is there. Now we're getting on a bunny trail here, but um, let me just say it this: There is a possibility, and, and I don't think any none of you here have been with me to Israel, but I don't know if you've been to Israel. But if you ever go to Israel and you go up to Temple Mount, you will see. I'm just gonna right here. It's not in the center. You have the Al-Aqsa Mosque here. That's the mosque where they worship, and you have the Dome of the Rock, which is not a mosque. It's a memorial to Allah. Night vision. Okay, then three, four, almost 500 feet to the north. Because remember, Temple Mount's enormous. It's 39 acres. So here you are. Here's the Dome of the Rock. 500 feet to the north is the other exposed bedrock. Because the Bible tells us that it was built on bedrock. It's what is called the Dome of the Spirits, And that thing lines up perfectly with the Eastern Gate, the Mount of Olives, where they offered the Red Heifer. Because the rabbis tell us that you could stand on the Mount of Olives where the Red Heifer offering was offered, look through the Eastern Gate right in to the Holy of Holies. Well, where the Dome of the Rock is, you can't do that. The Eastern Gate, you can't look through the Dome, look through the Eastern Gate. It's on an angle. You can't look into where the Temple was. But if you're at the Dome of the Spirit, you can look exactly, it's a straight line. That's why some theorize that you could rebuild the temple 500 feet north of the Dome of the Rock and still keep it at the Dome of the Rock. You know in 2000, when Bill Clinton brought Yasser Arafat and Ahu Barak to Camp David and was trying to force them to do a final negotiation? I don't know if you remember that. Ahu Barak offered everything to Yasser Arafat, even the internationalization of Jerusalem. During those negotiations, Bill Clinton said, listen, why don't we do this? Let's just build a really big curtain right in the center of the Temple Mount, and on the north side of that curtain, the Jews can build their temple, and then you have the Dome of the Rock, and that'll settle it. Isn't that great? I, To me, when I, I, I found that out when I was doing research for my book, that's extraordinary, because personally, and I can't prove that, but because I've been there, you can see this thing is so massive. You could easily rebuild the temple and still have the Dome of the Rock. Just put a curtain in the middle. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen. I do not know, but I do know the Bible says the Jews will rebuild their temple. But the Dome of the Rock
1: is a holy of one spaces for the Jews. Yes. So it has to be included in the temple.
0: Not necessarily, Mark, because it, it, this is what a Jewish scholar at the University of Haifa has done a lot of research on that. and He's the one who is arguing you could rebuild the temple because the bedrock in which the temple was built, he is arguing is where the Dome of the Spirits is. There are only two places in Temple Mount well, where there's bedrock, where the Dome of the Rock is and where the Dome of the Spirits is. Now, we are getting way down a bunny trail. I've lost 99% of you, okay? So let's get back on tech. All right, some of this we'll talk about later on. But this is, this is fascinating stuff. But whatever and however you settle on these things, the one thing you know, God has everything in control, and he's working his plan of history. To accomplish one primary thing, the final redemption of the human race, which was all wrapped around the coming second coming of His Son, when evil will be destroyed, the kingdom of God will be set up, and Jesus will and reign for a thousand years, which is really the front door then to the new heaven, new earth, the eternal state. That's exciting. I mean, it's just that's the thing about this; it keeps you on. God knows what He's doing. God knows what He's doing. Vladimir Putin is no threat to God's plan. The that's nut right. who's running North Korea, he is no threat to God's plan. And ISIS is not a threat to God's plan. Whatever they're doing and whatever he's permitting them to do, it is not going to thwart the plan of God. That's, that's really important to keep that in mind. And this book tells you the outline of the plan of God. As I tell you, Jim, my company I work for, it's basically a Christian company, but our owner is sending us to Israel three or four times. Oh, my goodness. Four or five times a year to evangelize the people. Mm. Wow. wow. Have, you, have you been I'm there? going this year. You're going this year? Wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. So it's what? not for this site. We're there to meet the people. He said it's really interesting. They they all bite you in, in, in a lot of education. Incredible. Incredible. I mean, but that, that's his, on his heart. and I mean, this is the second year they did it last year. Hmm. I was supposed to go last year, but I had some health things that couldn't go. <clears throat> but this year I'm planning. A- Wonderful. That'll be exciting. Yeah. When when are you going in 2016? Yes. Okay. That's great. That's great. You will make some good friends. I have a lot of very dear friends in Jerusalem, and none of them are believers, but they're just really wow. different. Let's go to chapter ten. All right. We're done with nine. Now, what are, I'm going to go through chapter 10. We won't get it done today. And then we're going to summarize chapter 11 in two minutes. We'll do that next week. But chapter 10, listen, chapter 10 is really an important chapter because for a moment, the window is lifted and we get an insight into the cosmic struggle that's going on between good and evil. And you'll see that if as we get into it. All right? Now, chapter 10. Let me start reading this. Um, in the notes, I have some background material for this. But in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that would be 536 B.C. So, again, as I told you the other last couple weeks, we're no longer following chronological order. The first seven chapters, tight chronology, bang, bang, we know exactly. But 8 through 12, it's not chronology, it's the theme that he's developing. <clears throat> A message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. Remember, that's his Babylonian name. And the message was true and one of great conflict, but he understood the message and understanding the vision. Now he begins to tell it. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. That's twenty-one days. He had been mourning. What is he mourning? What? What is he? This is part of the, what we saw in Daniel chapter nine. He's remorseful for the sins of his people, which caused them to go into exile. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did, I, nor, nor did meat and wine into my mouth, nor did I use any ointment. That's the, that's the hygiene. In the ancient world, they used fragrant oil because they didn't bathe every day like we do. They used oil on their body to keep it you know, from getting dry. That's all he's saying. I didn't even do that. I didn't do the normal hygiene until the entire three weeks were completed. So he's, he's fasting, he's praying, he's mourning in a contrite manner for the sins of his people, which had caused them to go into exile. On the 24th day of the first month, while I was on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris River, remember we're in the Mesopotamian Valley, Tigris. Tigris is here, Euphrates is here. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, Whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz, his body was like barrow, his face the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Who might that be? Jesus. This is probably not, it is a theophany. It's an appearance of God and this is the same description you read in Revelation chapter one it's the same description you read in Matthew 17 the Mount of Transfiguration most most expositors think this is Jesus pre-incarnate Jesus appearing to him because of the descriptive phrases Now I Daniel on Saul division no other men who were with me he apparently was part of the delegation a group of men they didn't see this. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on me, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone saw this great vision. Yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you. And stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, Now, what is generally assumed is that now this is an angel talking to him. It's someone different than the one who appeared to him earlier because of what is said in verse 12. From the day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before God. So how many days is that? 21 days. So 21 days ago, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Why did it take 21 days? Verse 13 explains. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael. One of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Who's Michael? The archangel. The The only archangel named in the Bible. Gabriel is named, but he's never called an archangel. So this is the most powerful in the angelic host. This was such a formidable battle that he had a call on Michael to help him. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. Now men, I just want to ask you a question here. What do we learn from verse 13? The window has been lifted. The veil has been pulled back for a time. What did we learn from verse 13? Can you extrapolate from that a pretty significant theological principle? There's a spiritual battle of good and evil happening all the time. Yes. And who are fighting? The angels of God and the demonic princes of Satan. Who are the princes of Persia? Listen, what is that telling us? That energizing the power of human kingdoms that stand opposed to God is demonic power. He's, he talks down in verse 20. I'm going to go now, but I'm going to have to battle the prince of Greece. Who's that? That's that's not a human prince. You're, this is this is really remarkable, guys. This is telling us. This is one of the few places, but there are others. But this is one of the few places where the veil is removed just temporarily that the supernatural cosmic battle involves the forces loyal to God and the forces loyal to Satan. Revelation 12 tells us one-third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion. So this is really tough. So, all right, can we then think that today there is demonic supernatural power energizing the evil kingdoms of this world? Is there any reason why we shouldn't include that? No. To me, that really helps. Listen, in 1 John chapter 2, John says to us, listen, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. That spirit which will be finalized in the real Antichrist when he comes at the end, but the spirit of Antichrist is here. What does that mean? The spirit of rebellion against God is here. And that, it, it, that for, I mean, history is one of my interests, but it helps me to understand that when you see monstrous evil coming from a state, when you see monstrous evil coming from rulers, where is that sourced? This is telling us. Listen, if you, I don't know how much you've ever studied. If you really study that inner circle of the Nazis in the late 20s and through the 1930s when they're consolidating their power, and of course then in the 40s when they're starting to lose World War II, but you, you, what you see there is unbelievable demonic power. I have a book in my office back uh, at Grace called The Occult in the Third Rite. It's written by two French historians, and they're not Christians. All they're doing is analyzing the amazing amount of evidence of how rooted the, the Nazi movement was in the occult. So that should tell us, again, all that tells us is that behind the forces of evil is demonic power.
1: You mean that the formation and their success was supernatural, or what do you refer by demonic power?
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you wouldn't say it's successful because it was completely destroyed. But the, the early appeal um, and fanatical devotion of the German people for a while to the Nazi movement. What, why was Hitler so mesmerizing? Is it possible, I think it is, that it, 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 the power behind it is a demonic supernatural power? Have you ever watched Hitler? I, again, I don't get on how much you ever studied it, but have you ever watched some of Hitler's speeches and the response of people? It's, just, it's, it's an, it is an amazing thing to watch. The same kind of thing. Joseph Stalin had that same, same kind of energizing force and power. So, All I'm saying to you is this is just telling—it's lifting a window just very briefly that in back of the temporal power of our world, This angel and Michael are battling with the demonic forces in back of Persia. He says, I'm going to battle the prince of Greece now, verse 20. That's just an important reminder. There is a cosmic nature to this struggle. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 1? I'm going to close with this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Put on the whole armor of God because we battle not against flesh and blood but against the forces of evil. And then he personalizes it, centered in Satan. Daniel 10 is telling us what that's like. Ephesians 6 is telling us what that's like. Is there any reason why we shouldn't believe is also applicable in 2015. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't. But the wonderful thing, as John says in 1 John chapter 5, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Don't fear him. Just hang tight with Jesus. All right, tomorrow we will finish ten. We'll do chapter eleven in two minutes.
1: Oh, wow. Not tomorrow. Are Are you sure? Or I mean next Wednesday, excuse me. Because
0: chapter, we have... chapter uh, yeah, we're gonna finish chapter ten. I'll say a few and we'll we'll finish the book of Daniel, no doubt, next week. Isn't that amazing? So anyway. I'm gonna pray. Lord we're thankful for the truth that you Have a plan for history. It's laid out in the first uh, seven chapters, in terms of the basic framework for human history. And eight through twelve lays out how the Jews fit into that. And we learn from chapter nine that the fundamental purpose, through the Messiah who comes from the Jewish race, is of course a redemptive purpose. You'll make an end to sin. You'll bring in the righteousness of your kingdom, both wrapped around the first and second advents of Jesus. Lord, I'm really thankful that you are a God whom we can trust, a God who has everything under control. You are not concerned about the things that are happening in our world because your plan is on track. And um, although we have to be wise and careful, we have to have a government that's wise and careful, ultimately our trust and our confidence is in you. You are working your plan, and we trust you with that. Thank you for sharing some of this with us that we can understand from excuse me, a book like Daniel and that we can understand from the material we're going to be studying in the weeks to come. Our trust and our confidence increases as we learn more and more of the details of what your plan is. The amazing thing about it for each one of us is that we are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus. We're going to rule and reign in the coming kingdom. We're going to have a role in the coming kingdom. That's part of the redemptive promises you've made to us. We love you, Lord, for all you've done for us. We love you that you kept, made the promise that you're going to come back for us. And we're really we're holding you to that promise. And that we're going to have a role and a part in the coming kingdom. And we will live with you forever and ever and ever. There are promises that we believe you're going to keep because you've kept all your other promises. There's where our confidence is. That's where our hope is in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.